Well, friends, it's now time for the kids to head out and uh, for the rest of us, well, I've got to uh, present to you my homework because you gave me some questions over the last few weeks and uh, there are five and I'm answering them now. The first is, should Christians be active in protecting the Judeo-Christian virtues of our society? Well, I think we should. But I think we need to start by seeing the big picture. Uh, ultimately, what matters most is whether or not someone is forgiven and reconciled to Jesus. And that is why evangelism needs to be our number one focus as we await the return of Jesus. That's got to be number one. But at the same time, we who are loved by God, I think, have an obligation to show love to the people of our society, to our neighbours. That, that's what the Bible said. Jesus said, love your neighbour. And I think that the Bible also shows us how to act as a society in a way that is loving towards others. And that, in fact, shows dignity to the individual. That, that is something that we get from the Judeo-Christian virtues. You see, we kind of take it for granted that every human is of equal value and that those who can't defend themselves need to be protected. It's kind of in our DNA. It's sort of it's who we are as a nation. But this is being eroded in so many ways. See, we've always thought that very young and very old people need to be protected, even though they might contribute less than other more able-bodied people. That's why we stand up against abortion. That is why we say no to euthanasia. And because we believe what God says about marriage, we believe that it's more loving for a child to grow up with a father and a mother where it's possible, and that we should not make laws that encourage same-sex parenting. And that's not the first time you've heard me say that. But I think ultimately it's because of love that we'll stand up for these things. It's not so that we'll win a moral argument or that we'll shove our views down other people's throats. It is because we want to be loving to people who don't have a voice. The children, the elderly, the disabled, the unborn, just to name a few. So thank you for your question. Second one is related to that. And that is, should we use secular reasoning to engage with the world or only biblical arguments? Uh, if you've listened to me before, you'll know that I think that the Bible is pretty important. <laughs> it's the Bible that is the word of God that changes people's lives. It is the tool that we have to see genuine change in the world. That's how God's Holy Spirit works. Um, and as people receive the Holy Spirit, as they open up the Word of God and God speaks to them in the Bible, some dramatic things can happen. And that's what happened to William Wilberforce, who back in 1785, at the age of 26, became a Bible-believing Christian. And as a result, and through his time in politics and so on, he was able to set about the abolition of the slave trade. You see, the Bible changed him which then led him to bring change to society. But not all people are going to listen to the Bible. And sometimes I think we can rightly use other arguments, at very least to open up the communication channels. You know, So you might hear some convincing arguments against secularism by people like Ben Shapiro, who, who's an Orthodox Jew, or, or an even psychologist Jordan Peterson, who was out recently, who, who doesn't say whether or not he believes in God. 
you know, their views are very interesting because what they tend to do is to undermine the prevailing views of society in a kind of a funny way. They're not going there as Christians. They're going there as people who say, what the heck are we doing as a society? And their views and arguments can be of value. But ultimately, I think our, our sharpest tool of all is going to be the word of God. And so we've got to think, how do we ultimately get people to hear the word of God as we have these discussions? Question three. It's related to this. Uh, what can we do to help bring an end to the sex trafficking of children? Well, it's not unlike what happened in the 18th century, is it? Uh, sex trafficking, the commercial sexual exploitation of people, is a form of slavery. And yet it is still rife today. And we have every reason to be concerned. Uh, and when it happens to children in particular, it, it is even more tragic. So what, what do we do? What can we do to bring an end to it? Well, I think we have something that the rest of the world doesn't have, and that we, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Lord living in us. And so we have, because of that, we are able to pray to God and say, Lord, will you stop this and will you bring Jesus back soon? We can pray. And we can pray, will you please bring justice to those who harm others in this way? Sadly, uh, history will show this, and the Bible shows this as well, that life this side of heaven before the return of Jesus is not going to magically going to get fixed. We live in a fallen world, there is sin, and there will always be things like this until the end of history as we know it. But in the meantime, there are things we can do. We can pray, we can ask for God to intervene. And in, in my research, I came across an article that suggested five other things also that you might bear in mind. I'll briefly mention them. The first is educate yourself about child sex trafficking so you're better prepared to stop it. Secondly, recognise the signs of child sex trafficking so that you can better help any victims you might see. Report any suspicions to the police. That's number three. Four, raise awareness of this crime so more people are aware of it, which is what the person who asked this question is doing right now for us. And finally, take action by being an advocate about child sex trafficking. Thank you for this question. It's disturbing, but it is part of the tragic world in which we live. Two more questions to come. The Bible seems to be in conflict with science. So how can we help unbelievers with this hurdle? How can we help believers with this hurdle? I, think. Uh, I want to start by saying, did, in the 20th century... Of all the winners of the Nobel Prize, think about this, of all the winners of the Nobel Prize, how many of them do you think were Christians? What I'm not going to say, don't actually say this is a question for you just to think about, I'm going to give you the answer, but think about it. Roughly how many people, these scientific nerds, the top of their field in every single way, were Christian people who believed in Jesus? One in ten? Two in ten? Sixty-five percent. So more than two-thirds of the super, dare I say it, uber nerds in science land believe that Jesus was real. They're not saying that all you see is all you get. And so with that in mind, uh, we need to realise that the real smart scientists realise that being a Christian is actually the most logical response to evidence. Also, we've got to realise that the Bible is not a science textbook. Uh, it needs to be read according to its various text types or, or genre, genres, as you, you probably know. Uh, so we, we might sometimes find it to be comfortable to read it literalistically, but we actually 
need to read it literally. In it, it is in its proper way of understanding each bit of the Bible. And we need to realise that it was written thousands of years ago and it made sense back then and it makes sense today. Such was the amazing way that God did it so that it can connect with us. But we realise that it, it was written at a time way back before humans were able to see a lot of things of the earth and of the universe. And so, for example, there was a time when Christians believed that the earth was at the centre of the universe because they read stuff in the Bible that said that that seems to be the most logical way to understand cosmology. Uh, and then some bloke invented a telescope and he looked out and he worked out, I just, there's, I just it doesn't work that way. And then they were able to realise that, in fact, the earth revolved around the sun. The sun's at the centre of the universe. And they look at the Bible and they say, actually, we don't have to believe that the earth is, earth is at the centre of the universe in order to really believe the Bible. Maybe it's just talking about the primacy of the planet in which God has made humans who are at the centre of his universe. And so with that in mind, we also have the challenges that can be applied to issues such as understanding the first chapter of Genesis and other things as well. And I'm not going to answer that now. If you want to ask me a question about that, then I'm happy to answer it. Finally, what's our new body going to be like in heaven? Well, we're not told a lot about it. But I tell you what, we do know that our pain and our suffering and the limitations of our body will go. And there, there are certain jobs that won't be around in heaven, like doctors and oncologists and uh, legal people and um, quite a few of us, I'm sorry, you'll lose your jobs, but you won't, you won't need to work in he heaven, don't worry about it. But there's a point where human sin and everything that comes with it will go, as will our pain, and we will have, above all, the opportunity to spend every waking moment looking at Jesus and wondering, at, being in wonder at his face. Thank you for giving me all that homework. And for your tough questions, I love answering them. I love stretching our minds, so please ask me some more. And with all this in mind, we are going to now have a time to confess our sins to God. And so I invite Paul to lead us.